Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious world and now it's time for church chat hello again i mean it's strict and this is church chat (laughs) today on church chat we're going to be discussing satan you remember him don't you the prince of darkness the antichrist the beast master probably rings a little bell on your head now doesn't it (laughs) well isn't that special and now my first guest today is christopher durang Playwright or Satan worshiper? You be the judge. (laughs) Mr. Durang, do you hate Satan? Uh, Actually, I don't believe in Satan. Well, what else don't you believe in? America? (laughs) Tell me, when you wrote your play, Sister Mary Ignatius, (laughs) who was your collaborator? Was it by any chance Satan? No, I, I wrote it myself. Well, isn't that special? And you know, it's it, uh, it's it, it's a, it's about religious fanaticism. And even if you don't like it, don't you think free speech is important? Well, Christopher, why don't you give me a little hand? Someone's been needing to do that for quite some time, haven't they, Christopher? Yeah. Okay, we've had enough of you. My next guest is Sally Kellerman. Movie star or Satan worshiper? You decide. (laughs) Sally, do you hate Satan? Is it actually possible that you're serious? (laughs) No, that was a little joke. I find Satan hilarious. (laughs) Well, it's just quite frankly, I find this whole Satan thing kind of silly. Oh. Well, perhaps you'd find burning an eternal hellfire silly as well. I tell you what, leaving the topic of Satan aside for a minute, let me talk about my new movie. Uh, it's called uh, That's Life, and uh, working with Jack Lemmon was a real kick. And we I- like ourselves very much, don't we? Who dressed you this morning, Sally? Wasn't by any chance. <laughs> Satan? We've had enough of Sally. Let's bring out famous advice columnist Ann Landers. Ann, the question of the day, do you hate Satan? Yes, I do. In fact, you know, I wish that little scamp would write into me for advice. I'd give him 40 lashes with a wet noodle. Well, isn't that special? Is that advice coming from you, Ann, or is it coming from someone else? Like, oh, I don't know, say... You're listening to episode 188 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about how often we should conclude that demons are responsible for something. I'm Tom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. 
When people look at unexplained phenomena, two explanations often leap to mind. As we often say on Mysterious World, it's always aliens or it's always demons, because that's what people's minds go to. But even when people aren't looking for the unexplained, many Christians leap to the explanation of demons. Sometimes they'll warn that reading certain books or playing certain games or watching certain movies or TV shows can open you up to demons. How accurate are these claims? How can we really find out when demons are involved? And what can go wrong when Christians think it's demons, but it isn't? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? This episode involves demons, and demons can be scary. Uh, sensitive listeners and parents with sensitive children should be aware that some of the material we're going to cover could be scary. Although, as always, we're going to keep things clinical and not dwell on the sensational. Also, even for some of our sensitive listeners, it would be a good idea to listen to this episode because it will give you principles that you can use to reassure yourself in the future by learning how to accurately assess whether demons are involved in something so that you don't have to worry about it when it's not. Uh, by listening now, even if it's a little uncomfortable for the first few minutes, you can save yourself a lot of unnecessary fear in the future. And will we be looking at anything that could be disturbing? At the beginning of the episode, we will look at a few brief stories, uh, some of which involve children that can be disturbing, even though it's very unlikely that there was a demon involved and these should not be regarded as cases of demonic possession. And as I said, we will not be dwelling on the sensational and we'll keep things as emotionally neutral as possible. We'll take a quick look at a few of these incidents to show that we're not just talking talking about one isolated case, but something that happens in multiple places. And then we'll back off and look at things analytically. So if you listen to the first bit, it will get easier as we go. Jimmy, why did you want to do this episode? Because of listener feedback. I occasionally get queries from listeners who are unnecessarily worried that they've gotten themselves involved in something that's demonic when they haven't. Other people may have told them they're doing something, let's say watching a certain TV show or movie, that they've opened themselves to demons thereby, and they get all scared. Sometimes they even think they've sinned and need to go to confession. But when I ask them a set of diagnostic questions, it turns out that there's no basis to the claim. They've been given bad information that causes them to be subject to fear and scrupulosity, and there's no need for that. So I wanted to create a resource for them that would let them evaluate things on their own. And in the future, when I get inquiries from people, I'll point them to this episode so I don't have to repeat all the information all over again, and they can help themselves. What about listeners who aren't afraid that they themselves become involved with the demonic? Do you also hear from them? Yes. Uh, sometimes I get feedback from listeners who are passing on misinformation to others and making unfounded accusations concerning other people. Sometimes they're passing judgment on others for demonic activity when there isn't any. And sometimes they're making others unnecessarily fearful and scrupulous. 
I wanted to create a resource that would help them understand the relevant principles too. So this will be one of our occasional foundational episodes that people can use when evaluating mysteries going forward. This will provide a platform for future episodes that are devoted to discussing demons. That way we won't have to repeat all this material in each one of the future episodes and can simply offer a summary and refer listeners back to this one for a fuller discussion. All right, then let's begin. What was the disturbing story you referred to a few moments ago? It's an incident that occurred in late 2019, so just over two years ago. According to a Washington Post story from October 4th, 2019... An Arizona man faces a federal murder charge for allegedly holding his six-year-old son's face under hot water for several minutes to cast out a demon. Pablo Martinez, 31, told police he had noticed in the past week that his son was possessed by a demon. While he was bathing his son and his other child Thursday on the Pasqua Yaqui Indian Reservation near Tucson, Martinez told investigators he saw something evil in his son and knew he had to get rid of the demon. The boy became unnaturally angry, Martinez told investigators, so he allegedly held his son's head under the bathtub faucet for five to ten minutes so the hot water would run into his mouth. The water was casting out the demons, Martinez told investigators. Belief in demonic possession is not a fringe idea. Slightly more than half of Americans polled in a YouGov survey in 2013 said they believed in it, and 46% reported that they believed exorcisms could drive out demons. Demand for Catholic exorcisms has been growing in recent years, The Atlantic reported. The six-year-old boy, his adoptive mother, Romilia Martinez, and his biological mother are members of the Pasqua Yaqui tribe, according to a criminal complaint. Pablo Martinez is not a member. While Martinez held his son's face under the faucet, his other child left the bathroom crying, according to the complaint. Romilia Martinez heard gurgling coming from the bathroom, unlocked the door, and saw Pablo Martinez holding the boy down under the faucet, the complaint says. Romelia Martinez screamed at him to stop several times. She told investigators, but Pablo Martinez told her that he had to do it. She allegedly tried to call a pastor, but he did not answer the phone, so she called 911. Pablo Martinez then attempted CPR on the boy and poured cold water on him, the complaint says. Police arrived at the home to find the Martinez's standing outside. When officers asked what had happened, Romelia Martinez allegedly said something along the lines of, he can tell you, referring to Pablo. Pablo Martinez told police they would not understand what had happened because they were not of the right mindset or belief, the complaint says. As police kept questioning him, Pablo Martinez allegedly turned his back to them, raised his hands in the air and said something to the effect of, I did it. He allegedly told police there was a demon inside his son and that he, quote, needed to save him. Romelia Martinez also told police the boy had been acting demonic, the complaint says. Police found the boy, who was naked and did not seem to be breathing, propped up on a pillow on top of a bed, the complaint says. He was brought to Banner University Medical Center in Tucson and was pronounced dead about 5.30 p.m. The boy had hot water burns on 15% of his body, including on his forearms, elbows, and head, according to the complaint. The boy was a first-grade student at Lynn Urquidy's elementary school in Tucson, the school confirmed. Pablo Martinez was detained after his first court appearance Friday and held in the custody of the U.S. Marshal Service, court records show. 
Now let's look at this incident from the perspectives of faith and reason. From the faith perspective, demons are real, they can possess people, and it's possible to exercise them. However, reason shows that this is not at all a common experience. Demon, demonic possession does not happen to most people. Further, mixing the faith and reason perspectives together, the church recognizes this fact. As a result, it does not allow people to self-diagnose demonic possession. To make such a diagnosis, it requires the intervention of a specialist in the subject, a qualified exorcist. And the exorcist is required to eliminate possible natural explanations, including mental illness, before concluding a demon is present. The church also has approved ways of dealing with demons, and this was not one of them. Correct. The exorcist is required to use the prescribed rites that the church has authorized for casting out demons, and these do not involve holding someone's head under a hot water faucet in an attempt to use hot water to expel the demon. In fact, the rites do not involve physical torture or the infliction of pain at all in an attempt to expel a demon. They are not designed to put the demoniac's life in jeopardy. How good was the evidence that a demon was present in this case? Not at all good. The only evidence presented for the presence of a demon is the father's statement that the child became unusually angry and the stepmother's statement that the child had been acting demonic in some unspecified way. It is not at all strange for six-year-old children to throw temper tantrums or act strangely by adult standards. Further, some people, even at age six, can have mental illnesses that are in need of treatment, and sometimes these illnesses are produced by organic causes, such as malnutrition or brain tumors. These people were not qualified to diagnose a case of demonic possession, and from the reason perspective, the odds are that there simply was no demon in this case, and the parent's diagnosis was completely in error. As a result, this case serves as a cautionary tale of what can happen when people think a demon is responsible for something when it is not the case. The consequences can be serious, and people can and have died. That's why I wanted to start this episode with a vivid, concrete incident to get people's attention and realize the seriousness of what can happen when people casually misdiagnose things as being demonic that aren't. Can the 2019 Arizona case be dismissed as just an isolated incident? No, it can't. The In the further resources, we'll have a link that you can click to search Google for the terms died as a result of exorcism. And you'll be astonished at how many cases pop up in the search results. Here are some brief snippets about similar incidents placed in chronological order. First, from an April 1997 article in the New York in the Los Angeles Times. The deacon of a Korean Pentecostal church stuck out his tongue, opened his arms wide, and growled in a fiendish voice, mimicking the demon he and two missionaries tried to expel from a woman who died of multiple injuries within hours of the ritual. In courtroom testimony that began Monday and is expected to continue into next week, Jun Hyun Choi, deacon of Glendale Calvary Presbyterian Church, laid bare the details of what prosecutor Hank Goldberg alleges was an exorcism that turned to murder. Jin Choi, 47, took the witness stand under an agreement with prosecutors in which he pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter and will be spared a lengthy prison term in exchange for his testimony. From a June 2013 article on NBC News. 
A Virginia man was convicted earlier this week in the death of a two-year-old who died during a 2011 exorcism. Ader Guzman Rodriguez beat his daughter Jocelyn to death in an attempt to rid her of the demon he believed was inside her. Police summoned to the scene encountered several people holding Bibles outside the home. The girl was found on a bed wrapped in a blanket surrounded by Bibles. From a January 2020 story on the BBC. The bodies of seven people have been found in a mass grave in an indigenous area of Panama, where members of a religious sect were believed to be performing exorcisms, officials say. The victims included a pregnant woman, 32, and five of her children aged 1 to 11. The sixth was a neighbor, 17. Fifteen other people were freed. Ten people have been arrested on suspicion of murder. The suspects and all victims were thought to belong to the Nagabe Bugle indigenous tribe. From an April 2020 story on ABC News. German authorities have charged four people in the death of a young woman who died in an apparent exorcism ritual almost four and a half years ago. Berlin prosecutors said Tuesday that the 22-year-old woman's husband and three other defendants face a charge of causing serious bodily harm resulting in death for their alleged attempt to cure the victim's infertility. They accused the four of jointly killing the woman, identified only as Nesma M., with a saltwater treatment intended to expel demons. From a December 2020 story by the Associated Press. The parents of a four-year-old Missouri girl, allegedly killed by neighbors to remove a demon, pleaded not guilty Monday to charges connected to the case. Mary S. Mast, 29, and James A. Mast, 28, both of Lincoln, Missouri, were charged Thursday with felony child endangerment resulting in death and are jailed without bond. They don't yet have attorneys. During their arraignments Monday, Associate Judge Mark Brandon Pilly also denied the couple's request to attend the girl's funeral, according to online court records. A bond hearing was scheduled for January 5th. From a March 2021 story on CBS News. Police in Sri Lanka said Monday they have arrested two people in connection with the death of a nine-year-old girl who was repeatedly beaten during a ritual they believed would drive away an evil spirit. The two suspects, the woman performing the exorcism and the girl's mother, were to appear in court Monday to hear charges over the girl's death, which occurred over the weekend in Dagoda, a small town about 25 miles northeast of the capital, Colombo. According to police spokesman Ajith Rahana, the mother believed her daughter had been possessed by a demon and took her to the home of the exorcist so a ritual could be performed to drive the spirit away. That's six additional cases with four of the stories being reported in the last 12 months since January 2020. And it's not anything like a complete list. This is just a few of the search results that pop up on the first page or so of Google results when you search on died as the result of exorcism. Some of these incidents occurred in parts of the developing world. And while some of the people involved may have been Catholic, the exorcisms didn't involve Catholic priests. Can we dismiss them on that basis? No, because here's a story from the New York Times about what's probably the most famous death resulting from an exorcism ever. And it did involve Catholic priests who were in the developed world. Aschaffenburg, West Germany, July 13th, 1997. Two Roman Catholic priests were charged with negligent homicide today in the death of Annalise Michel, who underwent exorcism a year ago, the Aschaffenburg prosecutor announced. The 23-year-old woman's parents, Joseph and Anna Michelle, were indicted on the same charge, the prosecutor, Carl Stenger, said at a news conference in this North Bavarian city. 
If convicted, the defendants could get five years in jail. The German priests Ernst Alt and Wilhelm Renz said they conducted the exorcism rites in a church-approved attempt to free Miss Michel of demons after four years of medical treatment failed to cure her epilepsy. She had been an education student at the University of Würzburg. She died July 1, 1976, of undernourishment after several months of the exorcism rites conducted at her home in Klingenberg, 30 miles west of Würzburg. During the rites, she refused food and medical help, and her weight dropped to 70 pounds before she died at home. The prosecutor said Miss Michelle's death could have been prevented if she had received medical help. He said the priests and her parents must have recognized she was dying. And that's right. By the time she died, Annalise, who in this case, by the way, is the basis of the movie or the inspiration of the movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, but Annalise actually weighed less than 66 than 70 pounds. As a full grown woman, she weighed 66 pounds at the time of her death and her knees were broken from constant genuflections. Her parents and the priests performing the exorcisms should have recognized the serious health crisis that was happening and taken effective steps to address it, but they didn't. They had a misplaced confidence that exorcism rituals alone would deal with the problems that were at hand. Now, there's more that can be said about the Annalise Michelle case, and we may cover it in a future episode. But the point is the point that needs to be made here is that even with highly educated Catholic priests presiding over an exorcism in a developed country like West Germany, people have died. So there's no dismissing this as something that just happens to uneducated people in remote parts of the world. No, it can happen anywhere. And the reason it can happen is that people don't have an accurate understanding of the demonic. Even if you think demons were active in some of these cases, the procedures that were used to address the situation were needlessly fatal. And the people died and people died who did not need to die. The demons didn't kill these people. The inadequate care or improper treatment they received as part of the exorcism process did that. And Satan laughs at that. That's exactly the kind of thing he wants to happen. All these people fell right into his trap. As Jesus said in John 8:44, Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and he loves the idea of people being killed because of him. Because of people who either falsely believe that he's responsible for something or who falsely believe that they're getting rid of him when really they're killing his victims. Death isn't the only problem that can result when people misunderstand the demonic. How would you classify the different kinds of problems that can occur when people assume it's always demons? There are basically three types of problems that we'll discuss here. Injury, error and scandal. All right, let's talk about each. How can injury result? Injury can be either physical or emotional, and it can be either direct or indirect. For example, physical injury can occur directly as a result of wrongly thinking something is demonic when physical damage is done to a person's body in an attempt to get the demon out of them, as in many of the cases we just heard about. And by the way, we're past the worst part now, so it gets easier from here. In extreme cases, that direct physical injury can result in death, but it also can result in lesser things such as being scalded, bruised, cut, having broken bones, and so forth. It also can result in physical pain, even if there aren't wounds that leave marks. And what about emotional injury? 
Emotional injury can happen in a direct fashion as a result of telling a person that they're possessed or influenced or being attacked by a demon when this isn't the case. Demons are frightening and you're directly inflicting fear, even grave fear, on a person by telling them things like this when it isn't the case. And that's a best case scenario in the case of a psychologically healthy person, but it can be even worse for someone who has a psychological condition. For example, suppose that a person has obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. OCD affects about one in every hundred people, and it causes them to have painful, obsessive thoughts, and they then feel compelled to do rituals to cope with the resulting anxiety. You can tell a person with OCD that they're possessed or under attack by a demon, and it can send them into an OCD meltdown, where they're constantly tormented by thoughts that they think are demonic, but aren't. And they may do endless rituals to try to counter these thoughts. As a result, they can be paralyzed by a constant compulsive need to pray or go to the sacraments or wash their hands or something. And OCD is just one example. There are all kinds of mental conditions that can be made worse by telling someone they've got a demon when they don't. That's why the church demands that exorcists eliminate mental illness as an explanation before they conclude someone is possessed. Because if you don't do that, you can inflict un told harm on a person with a mental illness by falsely telling them their problems are demonic. You said injuries also could be inflicted indirectly. How would physical or emotional damage happen to a person indirectly as a result of a false demon diagnosis? In a variety of ways. In the case of physical injury, it could happen not because the rituals undertaken to rid the person of the demon or not because of the rituals, but because the rituals are distracting people from something else that needs to be done. For example, if you have someone with epilepsy and you mistakenly attribute it to a demon, then you prevent them from getting proper treatment for epilepsy. Or if it's a brain tumor, you prevent them from getting treatment for the brain tumor. Or if it's that they're refusing to eat and the eating condition is being attributed to the devil, they can hurt themselves by starvation, as in Annemalise Michelle's case. Whatever the case, failure to address its root causes can make the condition get worse, and it can lead to further injury and pain, and in extreme cases, it can even lead to death. And what about indirect emotional damage? The same thing applies in the case of someone with mental illness. Failure to treat the underlying condition can cause it to get worse rather than better. And even if it doesn't get worse, it still continues to be untreated, and thus it will continue to inflict suffering on the person and those around them. And there is indirect pain even when the person is not mentally ill. Setting aside the fear that is directly caused by telling someone they have a demon when they don't, the fact they can't get rid of a non-existent demon means they're going to get frustrated and possibly angry with God as they make futile efforts to get free of something that isn't there. They also can be isolated from friends and family members who falsely believe they have a demon and are now afraid of them. And they can feel guilty that it's their fault and they must have done something wrong to invite the demon 
when there isn't a demon at all. So a false demon diagnosis can cause people to experience all kinds of emotional pain in addition to raw fear. It can cause frustration, anger, isolation, guilt, all manner of emotional evils. You said that another problem that comes from false demon diagnoses is error. What did you mean by that? Well, the fact that it's a false demon diagnosis means that there's an error involved right there. Uh, I, 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 but I meant something more than that. In John eight forty four, Jesus didn't just say that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, but also that he was a liar. In fact, that he's the father of lies. So the devil loves falsehoods. That includes falsehoods he can use to trick people into uh into telling about him so they have false beliefs about him because people believing false things about him is to his advantage it can cause them to underestimate him and it can cause them to overestimate him both of these underestimation and overestimation can cause direct or indirect injury to people if people are underestimating them, he has a chance to strike and overpower them in ways they aren't expecting. But if they overestimate him, they can falsely attribute things to him in ways that cause physical or emotional damage, as in the examples we've seen. In addition to that, although overestimating the devil through false beliefs about what he's responsible for can also cause other problems quite apart from attempts to exercise him when he's not there. This is because every time you have a false belief, it has an opportunity cost. That's a term not everyone may be familiar with. So what's an opportunity cost? An opportunity cost is a benefit that you give up by making one choice rather than another. You had the opportunity to gain something, but you cost yourself that opportunity by making the choice you did. This happens every time we make a choice because there's always something that we could have gotten by making a different choice. For example, if you're a single person deciding what to do with your evening, you might either decide to stay home and watch TV or go out on a date with a new person. If you decide to stay home, you miss out on the benefits of going on a date, such as getting to know someone you might want to marry. That benefit is the opportunity cost of staying home and watching TV. On the other hand, if you go out on a date with a new person and they turn out to be someone totally unsuitable and you have a rotten time, then you miss out on the pleasure of staying home and watching your favorite shows. In that case, that's the opportunity cost of going out on the date. So no matter what we do, there is an opportunity cost, and that's why having accurate beliefs is important. The more accurate our beliefs are, the better the choices we can make, and the more we can maximize benefits and minimize lost opportunities. And how can having false beliefs about demons lead to opportunity costs? People often use false principles to identify when something is demonic, like Anything that's harmful must be demons, or anything that's scary must be demons, or anything you don't understand must be demons, or anything with a reputation for being shady or occult must be demons. If you act on principles like that, you generate all kinds of opportunity costs when you don't need to. That's a claim people will want to see documented. What would an example be of an unnecessary opportunity costs caused by falsely thinking something is demonic. 
Well, suppose that we go back a few centuries to before the rise of modern medicine, and suppose you encounter people with epilepsy. Their eyes roll back in their head, they fall down and lose consciousness, they become stiff, they start twitching, they start drooling, they start biting their tongues, they act confused, they may scream or cry or lose control of their bladders. And now suppose you assume that this is due to demons. Even if you don't try to exercise the epileptics to help them, if you assume it's demons, you won't be looking for the real cause, which is the medical condition of epilepsy. As a result, if people regularly made this assumption, they'd never develop treatments for epilepsy. And epileptics would continue to suffer when they could have treatment that would improve their lives. And it isn't just epilepsy this would affect. It would affect every medical and psychological condition that people would falsely attribute to demons. Acting on the it's always demons principle consistently would have stopped modern medicine from ever developing. It would have stopped it in its tracks, and all the benefit we have from modern medicine would be an enormous opportunity cost incurred by that false belief. What about assuming it's demons when something isn't actually harmful, like a disease, but just scary? Well, that's even worse. Uh, people naturally want to avoid demons, and we should avoid demons. But if you identify anything that's scary with demons, you're going to be running from your shadow. You're going to be running away from things all the time because there are things in the world that are scary. And the solution often isn't to run from them, but to face your fears, to deal with your fears and gain control of the situation. If you think it's always demons, you'll always be on the run and the opportunity costs will be huge. It could even lead to a situation where you're paralyzed by your fear of demons and you can't lead your life the way God wants you to. Scary thing equals demons is a terrible principle to act on. What if something has a reputation for being shady or occult? Should you avoid something if other people tell you it's a cult and involves demons? If people telling you that something is a cult is enough to make you assume that it involves demons, then this error will lead to big opportunity costs. If this principle was applied in the ancient world, then it's another reason we wouldn't have medicine. You see, in the ancient world, medicine and magic were closely intertwined. Effective modern medical treatments hadn't been developed, and so physicians and healers would do anything they could to try to help desperate patients, including appealing to pagan gods and spirits. The intertwining, uh, like, for example, they would say prayers to spirits when they were mixing medicines and stuff. The intertwining of medicine and magic meant that they were often a single thing. And so there are passages in scripture which condemn this medical magical hybrid. Sometimes these practices were referred to using the Greek word pharmakeia, from which we get the English words pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. But listen to how scripture speaks about pharmakeia when we leave the word untranslated. In Galatians 5, St. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, pharmakeia, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissensions, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. 
So pharmakeia is in really bad company in this passage, right between idolatry and enmity, among others. And in Revelation 18, we have another passage where an angel throws a great millstone into the sea and then declares, So shall Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more, and the light of a lamp shall shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your pharmakeia. Once again, we have pharmakeia being strongly condemned because it involved pagan magic. But that doesn't mean you can't disentangle medicine and magic. If we look at Sirach 38, we find statements that celebrate the physician and praise the making of medicine. Honor the physician with the honor due him according to your need of him, for the Lord created him. The healing comes from the Most High. The Lord created medicines from the earth, and a sensible man will not despise them. The word for medicine here is pharmacon, which shows how the word can be used positively for perfectly wholesome medicine. But if you look in a dictionary of biblical Greek, you'll find that the same word can also mean things like charm, magic potion, and poison. So you really have to disentangle the forbidden magical occult practices from the wholesome health-promoting medical ones. And over the centuries, that's what happened. Yeah, but not until the rise of modern medicine. Even during the Middle Ages, practices like herbalism were tangled up with witchcraft and had an occult reputation. So you could and did have people back then saying things like, if you use medicine, you're opening yourself up to influence by demons. Was this just a problem with medicine or did it apply to other subjects? Occult or hidden forces were part of science in general. Anything that was not understood was correctly attributed to the hidden forces that God had built into nature. And the Latin word for hidden is occultus. So all of the undiscovered aspects of science were occult things. As we heard back in episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult, thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas took a reasonable approach in disentangling permissible practices from non-permissible ones. St. Thomas even developed principles that you can use as an algorithm to evaluate whether a practice will be morally permissible or not, as we discussed. And you can go back and listen to those episodes, and we have a link to that algorithm. But in every age, there are lots of people who aren't as careful or open-minded as St. Thomas. There are always people of the it's-always-demons variety ready to attribute anything involving unfamiliar or occult practices to the devil. So for some people, science itself could have a shady reputation. Before the scientific revolution, yes. In fact, principles that we would now consider part of physics, chemistry, and medicine were then classified as natural magic. For example, it had been a principle of science ever since Aristotle that for one physical body to act on another, they had to be in contact. Even St. Thomas Aquinas said, a body cannot act where it is not. So in 1687, when Sir Isaac Newton published his Principia Mathematica, it caused quite a stir 
In the book, he proposed his theory of gravity, which did not require one object to be in contact with another to have an effect on it. So the sun, which is 93 million miles away from Earth, could nevertheless have a gravitational effect on Earth. That kind of action at a distance was considered impossible by the mechanistic school of thought that was dominant at the time. Action at a distance was considered part of magic, and it was indeed considered spooky action at a distance. So as historian of science John Henry writes in his article, Newton's Unnatural Laws... Newton had been coy at first because he knew action at a distance was such a magical and untenable position. The first edition of the Principia, accordingly, discussed gravity as an attractive force, but did not explicitly spell out that bodies were therefore acting on one another at a distance. Major representatives of the mechanical philosophy were not fooled, however. Newton's great rival, G.W. Leibniz, accused Newton of reintroducing occult qualities back into natural philosophy after they had been so brilliantly excluded by Descartes. For Leibniz, the Newtonian concept of gravity was, quote, an unreasonable occult quality, and so very occult that it is impossible it should ever be clear, though an angel or God himself should undertake to explain it. End quote. In spite of such criticisms, actions at a distance were no longer confined to magical traditions, but increasingly came to be seen as fundamental to mainstream physics. And it wasn't just gravity that needed to emerge from being a phenomenon of natural magic to be studied by modern science. Electricity, magnetism, chemistry, all of the things that allow our lives to be improved by science and technology. You would not have a phone or an air conditioner or a TV or a radio or a computer or a car or electric lights or refrigeration, much less modern medicine, if our ancestors had been willing to attribute anything considered shady or occult to demons. So thank God they didn't, that they undertook the work to disentangle the non-obvious things God built into nature from the things that others wanted to explain by demons. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch. She has got a wart. <laughs> what makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. The third problem you mentioned with using an it's always demons principle was scandal. What do you mean by that? In ordinary speech, scandal is something that's shocking or outrageous, like a political scandal or a social media scandal. But that's not what the term means in theology. Theologically speaking, a scandal occurs when you say or do something that leads other people into sin. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death. Scandal is a grave offense if by deed or omission another is deliberately led into a grave offense. But you can lead someone into sin even if you don't realize that's what you're doing. In fact, you can lead them into sin when you think you're being explicitly religious and pious and holy. 
In Romans 2, St. Paul is addressing Jewish people, in this case Jewish Christians, who teach others about God, but nevertheless cause those people to reject God because of their actions. He writes, You then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So got that? God is blasphemed among Gentiles, among the unbelievers, because of the behavior of these Jewish Christians. Gentile people might have embraced the faith in God, but they've rejected it and rejected God himself because these Jewish people have behaved in a way that led them to reject God. That scandal in the theological sense, and these people have caused others to sin by what they did. In Romans, what they did was behave hypocritically, but people also can cause scandal by other behaviors, such as behaving in a way that others will perceive as crazy. In 1 Corinthians 14, St. Paul warns the Corinthians against holding church services where everybody is speaking in tongues at once. He writes, If, therefore, the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So Paul has concern for how acting crazy in front of outsiders will affect them. If an outsider comes to a church service and sees Christians apparently acting crazy, he will reject faith in God and go on worshiping idols. So when Christians act like it's always demons, they give scandal to others? Absolutely. It's patently obvious that it is not always demons, that demons are not the explanation for anything strange, scary, unfamiliar, or unexplained. And so when Christians act like demons are the explanation for these things, they look crazy. They look stupid. And they look like religious fanatics who have bought into an obviously false belief system because it's obviously false that it's always demons. It's not. And that causes people to reject not only the false it's always demons belief system, it also can cause them to reject the Christian faith itself. In other words, it causes scandal to others. That's why I wanted to open this episode with some clips from a Saturday Night Live church chat sketch. Not everybody may be familiar with church chat, so could you explain what it was? In case people don't remember it, back in the 1980s and occasionally since then, comedian Dana Carvey has done sketches where he plays a character named Enid Strict, who is better known as the church lady. Carvey based this character on women he knew growing up. He was part of a Christian household and his family would go to church on Sundays, but he noticed certain super pious women at church who would do things like keep track of other people and whether they were in church. If a family went on a camping trip one weekend, they would be shamed by these church ladies when they got back. The church ladies might not openly criticize them, but they would shame them by implication. Oh, we missed you in church last week. I hope there wasn't some kind of life-threatening emergency. And then, as an adult comedian, he based his own church lady character on women who passively, aggressively judged other people like this. How popular was Carvey's church lady character? She was hugely successful. The church lady became a prominent part of American pop culture in the 1980s. She was hilarious, and people would regularly imitate her catchphrases like, 
isn't that special? And could it be Satan? And the reason they did this was because while the church lady is an exaggerated character, she's also based on truth. She was popular because everybody who grew up in Christian families knew people like her. They all knew people who, like the church lady, attributed everything they didn't approve of or didn't understand to Satan. In other words, they knew people who had an it's-always-demons attitude. And that's what made the church chat sketches so funny. And they are funny. Even if they're not always family-friendly, they're genuinely funny because they genuinely poke fun at common human failings, including failings like judgmentalism, superiority, and attributing things to demons in a knee-jerk fashion. But while these sketches can be funny... They also reveal a deeper and more disturbing truth, which is that Christians, by taking an it's-always-demons attitude, can cause scandal. They can drive people away from God. That could particularly happen with the audience of Saturday Night Live, which includes a large number of secular, unchurched people. Yes, and we heard how that scandal could happen even in the opening audio clips. One of the characters, played by comedian Jan Hooks, is just an actress who's on the church chat show to promote her new movie with Jack Lemmon. But when the church lady grills her about Satan, she marvels at the idea that the church lady is serious and says she finds the line of questioning silly. And she finds it silly because it is silly. Church lady is being ridiculous. Ridiculous being a term that means worthy of ridicule. The church lady is worthy of ridicule because she has an instinctive knee-jerk impulse to attribute everything she doesn't like to the devil. And that is ridiculous. It is silly. And what's your personal opinion of the church lady sketches? Well, of course, I don't approve of everything in them. Like I said, they're not always family friendly, but some of the material in them is very sharply written and works on multiple levels. Not everything about the church lady is ridiculous, and she makes some subtle points that are really good, which also contribute to why the sketches are funny, because the church lady isn't always wrong. She sometimes has legitimate zingers. It's not funny or not as funny if one side is always right and the other is always wrong. For true comedy, both sides need to have an element of the truth. Unfortunately, or I should say, Ultimately, you may want to go back and listen to the opening sketch again to hear how it works on different levels. Or if you want to watch it, we'll have a link to a video of it, though, like I said, it's by no means as family friendly as the edit that I did. Okay. so what lesson do you want our listeners to learn? If you take away nothing else, understand this. If you take the same kind of it's always demons attitude that the church lady does, then God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're making Christians and Christianity look ridiculous, and you are driving a wedge between people and God. If you take an it's-always-demons attitude, you are committing the sin of scandal. So stop it. Those are strong words, perhaps some of the strongest you've said on the show. On the one hand, Satan is real and active, and we must recognize that. On the other hand, we must not exaggerate his influence. So what do you suggest people do? The first thing to do is recognize, as you've said, that we have two truths to consider. On the one hand, demons are real and really do have an influence. On the other hand, this influence is limited and must not be exaggerated. 
The correct way forward, therefore, is to take both truths seriously and to try to find the correct balance between them. We need to neither maximize nor minimize the influence of the demonic. Both it's always demons and it's never demons are wrong. What we need to do is find criteria that will let us establish whether it is or isn't demons in a particular case. Okay. Before we get to that, I do want to take a moment for something that's really special, like the church lady says. Uh, that is, I want to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Jana D, Cindy D, Christopher K, Catherine N, and Lavinia S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, how can people find criteria that will allow them to establish whether demons are actually involved or not in a particular situation? By looking at what we already know. This doesn't mean just looking at what you've heard other people say, whether they're ordinary people or priests or people who claim to be demonologists, many of whom are lay people, or even people who are exorcists. A lot of ordinary people don't give any thought to demons and may be too inclined towards the it's never demons position, but the same is true of some ministers and priests who may be unduly influenced by secularism. They also may veer too much towards the it's never demons position. On the other hand, some ordinary people and some ordinary priests are like the church lady and are too inclined to see demons under every rock. Correct. And this can also be true of people who hold themselves out publicly as demonologists or exorcists. In what I've observed of pop culture demonologists and exorcists, I mean, the ones who are out writing books and giving talks and going on interviews, I've seen a lot of instances where these people attribute too much to the devil and are too inclined towards it's always demons. And why do you think that's the case? This may be due to people who are attracted to demonology and exorcism being too desirous of having experiences with the phenomenon. The same way some ghost hunters so much want to have encounters with ghosts that they attribute every bleep on an EMF meter to a ghost, or the way that some UFO hunters or Bigfoot hunters or Loch Ness Monster hunters so much want to have encounters with aliens or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster that they attribute everything possible to these phenomena. Or it may be due to the fact that after they've had a few real encounters with demons, demonologists and exorcists may become hypersensitive to the point that they to the point that out of an abundance of caution, they think stuff is demons when it isn't. It may just be an occupational hazard of having actual encounters with demons. But either way, a lot of the opinions you hear, whether they're from ordinary people, ordinary ministers or priests, or even demonologists or exorcists, these opinions tend to veer too much either towards it's never demons or it's always demons. To establish a truly balanced view that corresponds with the data, we need to set aside the popular accounts we hear and look at the basic evidence. And where do we look for that? 
in the first place in the Bible. We'll be going over more of the biblical evidence regarding angels and demons in future episodes, but for the moment, let's consider a summary of it. The Old Testament contains relatively little on the subject of demons. It does acknowledge that demons are real. The Hebrew term for demon, for example, is shed, the plural of which is shedim. Deuteronomy 32 in Deuteronomy 32, it talks about how Israel abandoned the true God for foreign deities, and it says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominable practices, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, Shadim, which were no gods, to gods they had never known. Similarly, in Psalm 106, we read, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, Shadim, they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So in both of these passages, we have an acknowledgement that demons exist, and they want to be perceived as deities, as gods other than the true God. And they wanted sacrifices offered to them, including human sacrifice. What do we find when we turn to the New Testament? Jews in this period had a robust awareness of demons, and we encounter a significant number of cases of possession. Some of these cases involve demons causing physical problems, including blindness, muteness, and epilepsy. But just because demons can cause physical conditions like this does not mean that such conditions are always the result of demons. I mean, you know, it would be a big mistake to find someone who's blind or mute or epileptic and immediately want to do an exorcism on them, because experience shows that these conditions are not normally caused by demons and are better treated by medical procedures. Even in the first century, before modern medicine, they didn't automatically assume that such a person had a demon. For example, in John's Gospel, when the disciples encounter the man born blind, they mistakenly think that either he or his parents sinned, resulting in the curse of blindness, but they don't assume that the man born blind had a demon and needed to be exercised. So demons can cause physical problems, but merely having a physical problem is not enough to diagnose a demon. The causal arrow doesn't go that way. So you need additional evidence in addition to the physical problem to say that the physical problem is caused by a demon. And what about mental problems? Do we see people in the Bible displaying mental abnormalities because of demons? We do. And the classic case is the Gadarene or Gerasene demoniacs that we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's how Luke describes one demoniac's behavior. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. And here's how Mark describes it. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. So we see a bunch of symptoms of mental illness here. Self-isolating behaviors resulting in him living out of doors among tombs and on mountains. Refusal to perform self-care, such as wearing clothes. Vocal outbursts described as constantly crying out, which would either mean crying out in pain or sorrow or shouting at people. 
outbursts of physical violence, preventing others from binding him and keeping him under control, and self-harm behaviors like bruising himself with stones. After Jesus exercised this man, he gets dressed and is recognized by others as being in his right mind, meaning that previously he was displaying behaviors of an unsound mind. So demons can cause symptoms of extreme mental illness. But once again, mental illness does not imply the presence of a demon. No, and even in the ancient world, people recognized that mental illness was not always due to demons. People suffering from extreme mental illness or madmen were recognized as a distinct class of people and were not identical with demoniacs. Thus, in 1 Samuel 21, David pretends to be a madman in order to escape one of his enemies, and we read... David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish to his servant said, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? So madmen were a recognized social category that displayed characteristic behaviors like making senseless marks on things and drooling. And David imitated these behaviors so that he would be perceived as a madman. But he wasn't perceived as a demoniac. And in the same way, we need to recognize that people can have mental illnesses without it being produced by a demon. Once again, you need specific evidence that a demon is involved and not just evidence for mental illness. In addition to the cases of demons causing people to have physical and mental problems in the Gospels, do we see demons doing other things in the New Testament? In Acts 16, St. Paul and his party have an interesting encounter in the Macedonian city of Philippi, where we read, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by soothsaying. She followed Paul and us, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul was annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This passage is interesting because it doesn't describe the spirit that the girl has as a demon. And the spirit actually seems to be announcing the gospel, telling the people of Philippi that Paul and his companions are servants of the highest God and that they'll show them the way of salvation. But she was apparently doing this in an annoying way, and eventually Paul drove the spirit out of her. One thing that this passage does is show that demons can provide preternatural knowledge, such as the knowledge of who Paul and his companions were and what their mission was, and also the knowledge of the future she used on Sue's thing for her owners. But once again, notice what this does and doesn't let us do. The passage shows us that sometimes demons will give people preternatural knowledge of things. But the causal error doesn't go the other way. They also can cause physical problems or mental illness, but you can't use physical problems or mental illness alone to deduce the presence of a demon. In the same way, you can't use preternatural knowledge alone 
to deduce the presence of a demon. After all, God often lets people have preternatural knowledge, as in, for example, cases of prophecy. Prophecy is even one of the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you can't use just the fact that someone has knowledge they wouldn't have a natural way of knowing to conclude that there's a demon involved. Once again, you need specific evidence of a demon in addition to preternatural knowledge, just like you do with mental or physical illness. Let's take a closer look at the information one might get from a demonic spirit, because that's something discussed more than one time in the New Testament. What else do we know? Well, it's discussed in several places, and one of them is in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is discussing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to mute idols, however you may have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is really interesting because you wouldn't expect Paul to give this kind of warning to the Corinthians unless someone was getting revelations in which a spirit was saying, Jesus be cursed, or translating it a bit differently from the Greek, Jesus is anathema. However, If you take a step back and look at what Paul is doing here, he's essentially telling the Corinthians that they need to distinguish between bad spirits, which are not speaking on behalf of God, and good spirits that are doing the will of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's telling them to perform a test, and that's something even more clearly stated in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. Notice that in this case, just like in the one Paul mentioned, the test involves a doctrinal proposition. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warned that no spirit from God would say Jesus is anathema, and here John says no spirit from God will deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. What lessons can we draw from that? Well, there are two of them. The first is that a key test, or the key test, the New Testament gives us, and more than once for testing the spirits, is whether a spirit from God is teaching correct doctrine. That is, if you see a spirit that says something that's in conflict with what God has revealed, then you know it's not a spirit from God. Second, it shows us that this is one of the interests that demons have, deceiving people about doctrinal truth. Summing up the biblical evidence we've seen, what can we say about what demons are interested in? One of the things they're interested in is being worshipped as deities. We see that both in the Old Testament and in some New Testament passages that we may look at in future episodes. And their interest in being treated as deities has involved human sacrifice, as the Old Testament mentioned. Second, demons can cause direct harm to humans, either in the form of physical problems like blindness, muteness, and epilepsy, or in the form of mental illnesses, including antisocial behaviors and self-harm. 
Third, they can provide humans with preternatural knowledge. And when this happens, they show a distinct interest in deceiving people about doctrinal truths. So whether what a spirit says agrees or disagrees with Christian doctrine is one of the key ways we can tell whether the spirit is a demon or not. Before we look at some specific applications for identifying the involvement of demons, we also need to take a step back and look at one big thing we haven't covered thus far, and that might be easy to miss. What is that? The fact that in these cases, we're dealing with an obvious alternative personality. When the Corinthians or members of John's churches were hearing from a spirit falsely pretending to be from God, it would have been manifesting as a distinct personality. For example, if a Christian prophet was delivering what the spirit was saying, the prophet was speaking on behalf of the spirit, a different personality. Similarly, the slave girl with the spirit of divination in Acts was speaking on behalf of a different personality when she predicted the future or announced who Paul and his companions were. In the Gospels, when Jesus was exercising a demoniac, he would talk to the demon who would manifest as an alternative personality different than the personality of the individual they were possessing. Thus, the Gadarene uh, demons asked Jesus to send them into the pigs. Uh, that was a request from an alternative set of personalities, not the demoniac himself. The demoniac didn't want to get inside of pigs. It was the demons that did. So a key mark of demonic involvement is the manifestation of an alternative personality. And that isn't just the case in the Bible. When demons were masquerading as pagan gods, they had their own prophets and prophetesses too. Thus, for example, the oracle at Delphi was a prophetess of Apollo, and she'd speak on behalf of the alternative personality of Apollo. Does that mean every time an alternative personality appears to be involved that it's a demon? No, sometimes there is an alternative personality, but it's an angel, one of the good guys. Or maybe God is speaking, and sometimes it's a departed human spirit. Like in Second Maccabees 15, where the deceased high priest Onias and the deceased prophet Jeremiah appear. Or in 1 Samuel 28, where the deceased prophet Samuel speaks through the medium of Endor. And it is Samuel, not a demon. 1 Samuel 28 states that it's Samuel, and Sirach 46 explicitly confirms that it was the prophet speaking after his death. All of those are cases where an alternative personality that was not a demon was speaking in a supernatural manner. But there are also natural cases of alternative personality, of course. It's possible for mental illness to produce what appears to be alternative personalities. This is the case in what used to be called multiple personality disorder, but is now called dissociative identity disorder. Now, personally, I'm suspicious of some of the claims about dissociative identity disorder, and we may discuss those in a future episode. But whatever is going on in these cases... Dissociative identity disorder is a natural phenomenon that at least appears to manifest alternative personalities. So once again, it isn't enough that an alternative personality appears to be involved in a given situation. That's not enough to diagnose a demon. You need more indicators than that. Then how does the church do it? What criteria are exorcists supposed to use when they're diagnosing a demon in preparation for a possible exorcism. 
here's what it says in the church's official right of exorcism, which isn't actually that easy to get a hold of because the USCCB will only sell it to bishops, but I got it anyway. So here's what the church tells exorcists. In the case of some intervention that is said to be demonic, the exorcist should above all use the utmost circumspection and prudence as a matter of necessity. First of all, he should not too easily believe that someone is possessed by a demon when the person may be laboring under some illness, especially of a psychological nature. Likewise, he absolutely should not believe that possession is present when for the first time someone claims to be tempted in a special way by the devil, to be desolate, and finally to be tormented, for one can be deceived by one's own imagination. An exorcist, therefore, should not proceed to celebrate an exorcism unless he has ascertained with moral certitude that the one to be exorcised is really possessed by a demon. So the exorcist isn't to perform an exorcism unless he establishes with moral certitude that possession is really involved. Moral certainty means less than absolute certainty, but more than just a preponderance of evidence. In this case, it means that very strong evidence of demonic possession is involved. And it singles out several alternatives to a person being possessed, including having a physical illness of a natural cause, having a psychological illness of a natural cause, and just the imagination of a person who thinks falsely that a demon is affecting him. All of those could be responsible instead of it being a demon. The right also says... He should accurately distinguish cases of the devil's assault from that credulity with which some people even the faithful, think that they are the object of evildoing, of bad luck, or of a curse brought by others upon them or upon their relatives or upon their goods. So the exorcist should beware of claims that someone is the victim of evildoing, meaning black magic, or bad luck, or the object of a curse. He, he shouldn't just buy it when someone claims those things. According to established practice, the following are considered as signs of being possessed by demons speaking a number of words in an unknown language or understanding someone speaking, making known distant or hidden events, showing strength beyond the nature of the individual's age or condition, such signs can offer some indication. These are things that are either mentioned in the Bible in connection with demons or that have been reported in connection with cases of possession in church history. Speaking or understanding an unknown language, which is a form of preternatural knowledge. Also, preternatural knowledge of distant or hidden events, including future ones, and physically showing unusual or unexpected levels of strength. The right says that such such signs can offer some indication. Why only some? None of them are conclusive because all of them can be produced by non-demonic means. Two of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues, and those involve preternatural ability to speak or understand another language. Also, the spiritual gift of prophecy uh, involves preternatural knowledge of distant, hidden, or future events. And unusual or unexpected strength can be produced by more means than one, including the gift of physical strength that God gave Samson when his hair was long, as well as purely natural surges of strength and adrenaline. So none of these are sufficient on their own to show demonic involvement. And so the right goes on to say... Since, however, signs of this kind are not necessarily to be reckoned as coming from the devil, 
it is also necessary to pay attention to other things, especially those of the moral and spiritual order, which in another way manifest diabolical intervention, as, for example, vehement aversion from God, the most holy name of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the saints, the Church, the Word of God, sacred things and rites, especially sacramental ones, and from sacred images. None of these things by themselves would be proofs of demonic possession either, and the right doesn't present them as such. I mean, after all, people can just be hostile to Christianity and display aversion to aversion to religious things, but that doesn't mean they're possessed by demons. And even faithful Christians who are deeply pious may have conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder that cause them to have painful, distressing thoughts when they encounter something sacred and thus make them averse to exposure to sacred things. But it's when you have a combination of these things that you get evidence for actual demonic involvement, like having unusual strength or preternatural knowledge and being able to look at a picture of Jesus or Mary. That's when you start to have significant evidence that a demon is present, especially if they're manifesting an alternative personality. Is an exorcist supposed to rely only on his own judgment in making this assessment? No, he's not, because exorcists are not experts in all of the relevant fields. Uh, they're, they're not psychologists frequently. They're not medical doctors frequently. And even they need second opinions from other people in their own religious field. As a result, the right of exorcism states, Regarding the necessity of using the right of exorcism, the exorcist will make a prudent judgment after diligent inquiry, always preserving the seal of confession, having consulted to the extent possible experts in spiritual matters and, if necessary, in the science of medicine and psychiatry who have a sense of spiritual realities. So the right is aware of the limits of an individual exorcist's knowledge and expertise, and it expects him to consult others before diagnosing demonic possession. How can we learn from these principles as ordinary laypeople? We should apply at least the same level of caution that exorcists are expected to use in diagnosing a demon. Rather than casually diagnosing a demon, we should display the same level of caution that the church directs exorcists to use in the rite of exorcism itself. And we need to be aware and give full weight to alternative explanations for problems, including physical illness, mental illness, and personal imagination. We also should beware of claims that a person is the victim of black magic or bad luck or curses. We should look for genuine signs that could point to the involvement of supernatural forces like preternatural knowledge or strength, but these also need to be combined with evidence of demonic forces specifically, like an intense aversion to the sacred on top of the preternatural stuff, or an alternative personality that's present and is contradicting Christian doctrine. Are we then in a position to diagnose the presence of a demon? No, just like an exorcist should never diagnose a case of possession on his own. I mean, there may be emergency circumstances where he can't consult, but under normal circumstances, the right does not want him to do that. And we ourselves should never, ever diagnose a case of possession on our own. An exorcist is expected to consult others when he suspects a possession, 
And if we suspect a possession, we should call the experts, including a Catholic priest who is a trained and approved exorcist, rather than doing an at-home diagnosis. If the people we heard about at the beginning of this episode had done that, a bunch of the fatal exorcism stories would never have happened. And the people, including the children who were wrongly diagnosed as a as possessed, would still be alive and would not have been killed. What if we're, we aren't talking about a full-blown case of possession? What if we're only talking about a lesser form of demonic involvement? We might suspect a lesser form of demonic involvement, but in that case, the person doesn't need a full-blown exorcism. Instead, he might just need prayer, and the church has prayers that the faithful can say for protection from the forces of darkness. In fact, the church publishes a booklet called Prayers Against the Powers of Darkness. This booklet is taken from an appendix to the rite of exorcism, and it contains prayers that the ordinary faithful are authorized to say. We'll have a link to where you can get a copy of it online in case you'd like to have one. But even though the lay faithful can use these prayers, they shouldn't casually assume a person is being affected by a demon, even when it isn't full-blown possession. No, in the first place, you may terrify the person unnecessarily and cause them all kinds of mental and spiritual suffering. And in the second place, you may stop them from doing what really is needed to address their problem, including getting treatment for a physical or mental issue. For example, supposing that someone has obsessive compulsive disorder and that the way it's currently manifesting, it's causing them to have painful, distressing thoughts about demons. If you just tell them clearly you're under attack by demons, then you'll terrify them and further make their OCD go crazy while simultaneously stopping them from going and getting the treatment that is available for OCD so that they can find the relief and peace that's available. Because the truth is, in this case, it's not demons. It's obsessive compulsive disorder, and that can be treated medically. We should never diagnose demons without seriously considering alternative naturalistic explanations. If we don't do that, we'll end up hurting people. What about giving people advice regarding things that could lead to demonic involvement? We hear a lot of warnings from people about opening yourself to demons by engaging in various activities. We do, and a lot of this advice is absolutely horrible because it gives the devil too much credit. While it's true that the devil was responsible for the introduction of human sin into the world, that doesn't mean that we face the devil every time we face a temptation. Uh, Catholic theology has classically recognized three sources of moral evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world means the bad example set by others, scandal. The flesh means our own disordered desires, and the devil means active temptation by demons. Notice that demons are only one of those three sources, and it gives them way too much credit to yell demon every time someone is involved in something iffy. A person may be tempted to do something that they shouldn't, but that may just be due to the world or the flesh, the bad example of others or their own disordered desires. 
The devil may not be involved at all, and we shouldn't assume that he is. Of course, he'd love us to think that every time someone does something bad, he's directly responsible. Uh, He can use that to generate fear and steer people away from the real solutions to their problems, like we talked about earlier. But we should have an accurate sense of the role of the demonic in the world and not exaggerate it. What would you say to someone who argues that we should use a precautionary principle and stay away from anything that might be demonic, just in case it is? I'd say that is a false and overly cautious approach that will end up harming you. The fact is that life involves risk. You cannot avoid all risk in life. If you try, you'll end up hurting yourself. For example, anytime you eat food, there's a chance it's been poisoned and might kill you. Even if you pick the food yourself, for example, at one point, the Roman Emperor Augustus would only eat figs he had picked himself. And according to some accounts, his wife Livia smeared poison on the figs in order to kill him. So even if you pick the food yourself, it's not guaranteed to be safe to eat. Yet, if you try to eliminate all risk of eating poisoned food, you'll end up starving yourself to death and you'll die anyway. The fact is, most of the time, the risk simply is not great enough to worry about, and you should eat your food with confidence and not worry about being poisoned. Don't get paranoid about it, lest you hurt yourself. In the same way, just because a particular thing might have a risk of involving demons, you can't let paranoia run away with you and cause you to avoid things just because there's a chance a demon might be around. There's always a chance a demon is around in anything you do, no matter how wholesome, even if you're sitting in church. But there are also angels around, including your guardian angel, who is always protecting you. And as a result, the great majority of the time, it is not worth being afraid of demons. In life, we're called to manage risk, not avoid it altogether. Risk management is what God wants us to do. On a recent show, uh, we were talking about this. Someone had asked a question, and I pointed out, look, there are bears out there in the world, and bears are dangerous. And so every time you go out of your door, there could be a bear, and you could get attacked. But most of the time, you don't have to worry about bear attacks. Now, if you're going into a known bear-infested area carrying food that the bears can smell, well, then maybe you need to take some anti-bear precautions. But you don't have to worry about bear attacks on a day-to-day basis. And in the same way, yeah, there are demons out there in the world, but they're kind of like bears. They're dangerous if you encounter them, but they're not under every rock, just like bears aren't. And so you don't have to be paranoid about demons any more than you have to be paranoid about bears. If you're directly inviting spirits into your life and so forth, well, then you may want to be aware that some of them might not be the good guys. But... Um, If you're just living your life or doing ordinary stuff, you don't have to worry about demon attacks any more than bear attacks most of the time. Can you give an example of where something might have demonic involvement, yet the risk is low enough that a Christian shouldn't worry about it? I'll give you a really good one, and it comes straight out of the Bible. You recall that demons are known to impersonate pagan deities, and as a result, in 1 Corinthians 10, St. Paul tells his readers... 
Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we, which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So Paul is warning his readers against idol worship. He doesn't want them to go into an idol's temple and partake of the food that's offered to an idol there. He says you can't do that and be a Christian, that you can't partake of the Lord's table and also the table of demons. So no worshiping in pagan temples. But then he immediately turns around in the same chapter and says this. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then out of consideration for the man who informed you and for conscience sake, I mean his conscience, not yours, do not eat it. For why should my liberty be determined by another man's scruples? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Notice carefully the principles Paul lays out here. He says, don't go into an idol's temple and partake of the sacrifices there. But he doesn't have a problem if you're over at a pagan's home for dinner and you eat food that has been sacrificed in a pagan temple and then sold in the meat market. He says, don't do it if you're told it was sacrifice. But the reason, he says, is that he doesn't want the other person being scandalized. He thinks the food itself is fine because it's part of God's creation. It belongs to the Lord, and you can receive it with thanksgiving and eat and drink to the glory of God. So... Even though the food was offered to a demon in the idol's temple, meaning demonic involvement, you can still eat it without worrying about it. It's ultimately God's. The food is. And as a Christian who knows this and who praises God for the food he's made, you don't have to worry that you're going to get wrapped up in demonic involvement by eating such food. You are not opening yourself to use a phrase that's never in the Bible, but you are not opening yourself to demons even by eating food that was offered to a demon. God will protect you. Then when would you be opening yourself up to demons? When you directly invoke them, like worshiping pagan deities. If you're not calling upon spirits, you're not opening yourselves up to them. You may or may not be doing something you're not supposed to do, but you're not opening yourself up to evil spirits if you're not invoking spirits. Don't be paranoid about this. You'll end up hurting yourself and others. Not all invoking of spirits is wrong. You can pray to God, and he's a spirit. You also can talk with angels or saints. But how do you know you're not opening yourself to demons when you do that? 
because you're not. In these cases, you know who you're talking to. If I'm talking to God, the creator of the universe, he knows that he's the one I'm addressing. And if I'm addressing St. Michael or the Virgin Mary, they know that I'm talking to them, not a demon. So I'm simply not invoking demons because that's not who I'm talking to. And what if you hear back? What if you hear a voice or something? This is where it gets more interesting, because even if I was talking to God or an angel or a saint, it's possible that it may not be the person I was talking to that answers me back. That's why the New Testament has instructions to test the spirits and see if what they say agrees with Christian doctrine or not. And that's why the church has procedures for evaluating apparitions, like we discussed back in episode 84. And like we discussed in some of our previous episodes on the apparitions at Fatima, even Sister Lucia, the principal seer, wondered for a time if the apparitions were caused by the devil rather than God. So if we hear back from a spirit in the supernatural world, we do need to test to be sure of who we're talking to. But we don't need to be terrified or paranoid about this. As St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So you're not invoking demons unless you're literally invoking demons. But if you hear a supernatural voice, do check it out to find out what its origin is. Let's look at some specific examples where people think you're opening yourself up to demons and see what the principles we've been considering and more general principles of moral and doctrinal theology would say about them. What about the case of going to a medium or holding a seance? Well, here you're definitely in a danger zone because you are invoking spirits of some kind. You may be invoking spirits of deceased human beings, but that doesn't guarantee that they're the ones who will be answering you all the time. As we've already seen, we need to test the spirits because sometimes a demon will impersonate a good spirit. On the other hand, I can't eliminate the possibility entirely that it will be a departed human spirit that responds because God sometimes allows that. He obviously allows it in the case of apparitions of the saints and theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas have indicated that God may also allow the souls of those in purgatory or even the souls in hell to manifest in some way to the living. And this can happen through mediums. As we mentioned, God allowed the medium of Endor to actually call up the soul of the departed prophet Samuel, and it really was Samuel. So if you go to a medium or hold a seance to call up grandma, I can't rule out in principle that God might allow grandma to answer, just like he let Samuel answer. But I also can't rule out that it's a demon pretending to be grandma, or even a damned human soul pretending to be grandma to have fun with you or something. But the bottom line is you shouldn't be doing that anyway. Deuteronomy says, do not call up the dead. And the church has reiterated this command, such as in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2116. So, you know, don't use mediums or seances. What about situations involving psychic abilities or testing psychic abilities? Well, if it's psychic research on mediumship, well, that's one thing. But if it doesn't involve invoking spirits, the matter's different. As we discussed back in episode 79 on religion, magic, science, and psychic phenomena, psychic abilities are supposed to be weak natural abilities that God has built into human nature. If that's the case, 
then there would be nothing wrong in principle with studying them or using them as long as you're doing it properly. God didn't build anything into human nature that is intrinsically wrong to use or intrinsically wrong to study. You just need to make sure you're doing it in the right way, which means, you know, using the rules of morality. But uh, but if psychic abilities are something God built into us, it would be okay to use them or study them. And it's not invoking demons to just use something that's part of human nature. What would you say to someone who argues that what people today call psychic abilities used to be mixed up with superstition and the occult, so demons might be involved? I'd say the same thing used to be true of medicine and science in general, just like we discussed earlier in the episode. Making drugs or pharmacaea was totally bound up in magic, superstition, and saying prayers to spirits and pagan deities, so demons were sometimes involved, which is why Scripture condemns pharmacaea in some passages. But it also acknowledges that making drugs to treat illness can be a legitimate thing and is part of God's plan. Fortunately, our ancestors didn't allow themselves to be intimidated by the fact that pharmaceuticals could involve demons, and they didn't let that stop them. They stripped the practice of its magical superstitious elements and continued to study medicine, allowing us to develop more effective drugs. In the same way, scientific principles like gravity, electricity, and magnetism used to be considered occult natural magic, but we stripped them of the magic and superstition and continued to study them and eventually learned a great deal about them as purely natural phenomena. So it was legitimate for our forebears to study these things and purely purify them of the magical, superstitious, and occult elements. And in the same way, it would be legitimate for researchers to study psychic functioning, stripping it of magic, superstition, and the occult, and seeing if there is anything actually there, and whether this is just another aspect of God's creation that we should appreciate. We shouldn't be intimidated by it could be demons in this area any more than our ancestors should have been intimidated by it could be demons when it comes to medicine or science. Parapsychology could just then be another emerging branch of science. What about when people engage in practices like meditation or play certain games or experience things in culture like certain books, movies, or TV shows? Sometimes people say those who do these things are opening themselves to demons. And they're usually wrong because in none of these cases are people usually invoking spirits, much less demons specifically. In the case of meditation, there are explicitly Christian ways of doing this, as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith discussed in its 1989 letter on certain aspects of Christian meditation. Other forms of meditation may not be explicitly Christian, but that doesn't mean you're engaging in something demonic unless you're actually invoking spirits as you meditate and ask them into you, then you are not inviting in demons. Neither are you doing this by playing games, reading books, or watching movies, plays, or TV shows. That doesn't mean all those things are wholesome. Many of them may not be. Uh, many do depict people doing things contrary to the Christian faith, or they contain scary things, or they may even depict demons doing stuff. But so does the Bible. It does all those things. It's honest about fallen humans, so it depicts them sinning, and it does have scary things in it, and it even depicts demons in the things they do. But that doesn't make reading the Bible wrong. Duh. 
So there's nothing wrong in principle with consuming media that does these things. No. What you need to do is be a critical and responsible consumer of media. You need to use critical thinking to recognize when something is incompatible with the Christian faith and not allow yourself to be drawn into morally unacceptable practices. And some people may have special temptations that may make consuming certain media or even certain passages from the Bible unsuitable for them, but because they shouldn't consume those passages or those movies doesn't mean that everybody shouldn't. So just be a responsible media consumer. Know your faith, use critical thinking, and know your own temptations and what you need to avoid. What about people when people hear claims that something is satanic or involves demons or witches? Well, use critical thinking and examine the evidence for such claims. Sometimes the evidence may support the claim, but often it won't. I remember when I was a kid hearing a rumor that all the actors on the all the actors on the original Star Trek series were Satan worshiping witches and you could tell by looking at their eyes. But that's nonsense. You can't tell whether someone worships Satan or is a witch by looking at their eyes, and certainly not with the low-resolution photos we had at the time. This was a lousy test, and if you used it, it would be your imagination of what you thought you saw in their eyes, not anything that was actually there that would drive your conclusion. So, don't believe every scandalous, sensationalistic rumor you hear, particularly about Satan and the demonic, because there's so much junk and misperception on those subjects. And if we shouldn't believe such rumors, we also shouldn't spread them either. No, when you use rumor-based, loosey-goosey principles rather than actual critical thinking, when you casually diagnose demons or tell people that something is demonic or that they're opening themselves to demons when they're not, you're feeding the exaggerated perception of demons that is out there. That perception gives Satan too much credit, and it lets him hurt people. It's the culture of casual demon diagnosis that was responsible for all those accounts we heard at the start of this episode, where children were being misdiagnosed as demonics and then being killed during the exorcism in an attempt to get rid of the demon. You don't want to feed that culture. You don't want to contribute to people being hurt that way or other ways by seeing demons under every rock. So be careful and use critical thinking rather than leaping to the conclusion that something must or may be demonic when you don't have concrete evidence of this. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the, the demons? As attractive as the it's always demons hypothesis may be, we must resist the temptation to reflexively leap to this conclusion. And it is a temptation because Satan wants us to give him more credit than he's due and to see him and his minions even when they aren't there. This allows him to get people into situations where they end up getting hurt. They may be killed as a result of a botched exorcism, or they may be harmed by not getting help for an actual physical or mental problem, or they're struck by needless fear and paranoia about themselves, their experiences, or those around them. One way or another, they're injured, and the devil wants that. So we need to be careful and exercise critical thinking. Sometimes it's demons, but usually it's not, and we need to be careful. 
That means considering possible explanations other than demons and giving them full weight. It means insisting on actual evidence, not just speculation and supposition and what if to say that demons are actually involved. It means not being superstitious because that's what seeing a demon under every rock is. It's a form of superstition. And when we engage in superstition, whether about demons or other things, we make ourselves look foolish. We, we bring disrepute on the Christian faith and cause God to be mocked. And we end up getting people hurt. So don't act like it's always demons because it's not. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers on this? We'll have a link to the uh Catholic Church's authorized booklet, Prayers Against the Powers of Darkness, that lay people can say. Also, we'll have a link to the original Saturday Night Live church chat sketch, which, as I said, is not quite as family-friendly as the edit I made. Um, we'll also have a link you can click to search Google for the words, Died as a Result of Exorcism. We'll have uh, the different stories, uh, like the 2019 Washington Post story uh, on the man who drowned his son under hot water while trying to cast out a demon. Also, the 1997 New York Times story on the Anna, Anna, uh, Annalise, Annalisa Michelle case. Uh, the article Newton's Unnatural Laws about how Isaac Newton's theory of gravity was perceived as occult and magical at the time, and also the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faiths document that we mentioned, Some Aspects of Christian Meditation. Excellent. So that will do it for, for us. Uh, we want to hear your mysterious feedback. What are your theories about the idea that it's always demons? How much do people overestimate or underestimate the role of demons in the world? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 618-738-4515. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going back in time to May 6th, 1937, and look at the famous Hindenburg disaster in New Jersey. What happened on the Hindenburg? Why did it explode? And was there sabotage or a cover-up of the true facts? Excellent. I love that mystery. That's a good one. All right, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at SQPN.com slash Mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Fiervento Law PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FierventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>